The word of God from the book of Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Would you uh, remain standing for just a few more minutes as um, we just commit this time to the Lord? Heavenly Father, um, open our hearts. We realize that when we uh, listen and read your word, it is a holy thing. And we, um, we want to listen with diligence and with faith. But we need your help because we are um, distracted. And so by your spirit, may we uh, see you, hear from you, and be changed. And may our affection for Jesus be increased. For we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, good morning, fam. I'm Ronnie. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you. Um, so we're in Hebrews, but would you do me the favor? Let me begin the sermon by this extended quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, because he says things better than I do. This is what he says. It's kind of extended, but hear, hear this out. He says, when you get down to it, it's not the popular idea of Christianity. It is not the popular idea of Christianity, simply this, that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, that if we only took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order and avoid another war. Now, mind you, that is quite true, but it tells you much less than the whole truth about Christianity, and it has no practical importance at all. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we would soon be living in a happier world. In fact, you need not even go as far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we would probably have a slightly better world than we have now. And so what? We human beings have never followed the advice of great teachers. We are, why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any, other than any others? Because he is the best moral teacher? That would probably make it less likely that we would follow him. But if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. Listen, there's been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. But as soon as you look at any real Christian writings, you find that they are talking about something quite popular misconception of Christianity. The scriptures say that Christ is the Son of God, whatever that means. They say that those who give, their, give him their confidence can also become sons of God, whatever that means. 
They say that his death saved us from our sins, whatever that means. There's no good complaining that these statements are difficult. Christianity claims to be telling us about another world, about something behind the world that we can touch and hear and see. You may think the claim false, but if it were true, what it tells us would certainly be difficult, at least as difficult as modern physics and for the same reasons. It's interesting, right? Here's the thing. The message of the whole Bible, and most certainly the book of Hebrews, which we're studying, affirms this, that Jesus is real, and we can't simply think of him as a moral teacher who wanted to make this life more comfortable, and that he's more real than the physical world, and he's more real than anything you can actually see or touch. And that you and I are on this sacred journey, a pilgrimage to the heavenly city to see him. But on this pilgrimage, some of us are weird, doubting, and we're considering giving up on this pilgrimage. That weariness is what was really true for the original audience who first receives the book of Hebrews. See, listen, they were, they were being threatened by their culture. Their fortunes, their reputations, and even their lives were in jeopardy. Their lives were being shaken right, to the core. Nothing in their world was stable. The brutal realities of their lives were making them rethink some things, rethink their faith. They asked, honestly, candidly, is Jesus really worth all of this pain? So, like, imagine the scene. Like, a, a centurion soldier, Roman soldier, barges into your house. He grabs your head. He lays it on the table. He, he grabs this big rock. He intends to smash your head with the rock. And he says, where is your God now? Because I don't see him. I mean, what would you say? What do you believe about Jesus? Is the invisible Jesus real? More, is he superior? Is he superior to even your next breath? Right? If your version of Jesus is only to make life easier, or here to make the world a nicer place, then that moment right before your head is crushed by the rock, you'll give up. Because nobody gives up their life for a guru with good advice. No one does that. But if Jesus is more real than the, than the centurion who's standing over you, then you will say, my God is a consuming fire. Beware. To kill me is simply to complete my pilgrimage. Now finish the job and pray for mercy, because you're going to see him too. Here's the point. The author of Hebrews wants to make your response to that centurion very easy. He wants it to make it easy for you to respond with courage. He wants you to sacred pilgrimage, no matter the cost. He wants you to trust Jesus more than you trust your five senses. But man, we need a little encouragement to stand firm when the earth around us is shaking. So the author is going to help us today by making a, a pilgrimage 
excuse me, uh, he's going he's gonna to make a contrast between these two kinds of pilgrimages, right? And so that's going to be our outline for today. We're going to explore the pilgrimage to Mount Sinai, and then we're going to look at the, the implications of this voyage, this pilgrimage to Mount Zion. So Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and I'll explain the, the context of each as we go. So let's start with this pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. Uh, let me see if I can't kind of uh, make simple for us the line of argumentation that's going on in the text, and really all of Hebrews. So Hebrews is using this rhetorical convention called a minori ad maius. So Latin guys, this is what we do, again, to make ourselves sound smart. It just means uh, from the lesser to the greater. That's, what, that's the argument he's mounting. And so the, he's making this argument that there was an inferior way of doing things in the past, but now there is this greater example. And right, so he's already done this multiple times. We've studied this multiple times over the last couple months. For instance, there were in the past Levitical priests, but now we have the eternal high priest. Right? In the past, there was the old covenant, but now we have the greater, the new covenant. In the past, God spoke through prophets, but now God speaks definitively through the incarnate word, through Jesus in the past, there were these sort of flaky kings of Israel, but now we have a greater king. We actually have the king of the universe. You see kind of how that works from... Well, the author is, is making that argument once again. So our text here in chapter 12, starting in a little bit before 25 actually, is in the middle of this discourse that describes these two pilgrimages. Two pilgrimages, and the first one, as I mentioned, is Mount Sinai. Uh, let me explain a little bit about what that would have recalled in the imagination of the original listeners. So right after Israel, the people of Israel were liberated from Egypt, they began a very long voyage to the Promised Land. Now, for 40 years, they wandered in the desert, and in that time, during that time, their faithfulness was tested. And perhaps the climax of this voyage was when they arrived to Mount Sinai. What happened there? Well, God spoke to Moses saying that he was going to reveal himself to the people on the mountain. But no one, and I mean no one, not even animals, are allowed to touch the mountain or they would immediately be incinerated. They would die. So all the people stood at the base of the mountain, right, when all of a sudden a trumpet is sounded. And I'm not talking about one of those silky, jazzy, or like uh, salsa trumpets, okay? I mean, this is like horrifying. It is so loud that the people start trembling. And then this thick, dark cloud descends upon the mountain. I mean, it's so thick, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And then it's accompanied with this fierce lightning and thundering. I mean, this is a very intimidating scene. And then the Lord descended on the mountain with this powerful, consuming fire. And the mountain shook like a ferocious earthquake. And God spoke through the thunder. And that's actually what the author of Hebrews is alluding to. Look there in verse 25, right there in the second part. It says, For if they did not escape when they refused him, 
who warned them on earth, remember back on the mountain, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, talking about Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now, greater to a lesser to greater, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So, so the people are deeply anxious and afraid. Why? Because the presence of God is scary. They, they wanted God's presence to go away, not because they rejected God, but because to be in God's presence is just so overwhelming. And so the presence of God was too much to bear, and they, these people were shattered. But Moses goes up to the mountain, he makes a covenant with God, and in that is included the Ten Commandments. That's where the Ten Commandments are given. So what happens as, like, these modern Jews and Hebrews, the covenant at Sinai began to, to represent a spiritual approach to God. So thousands of years later, that's how they began to think about Mount Sinai, this pilgrimage. And so Sinai represented a way of ignoring Jesus. And let me explain. It's a way of going back to Judaism in order to avoid oppression from the Roman Empire and from their culture, which was really hostile to their beliefs. Their culture hated Christians. Now, Judaism was safe. It was a little quirky to their culture, but you weren't going to get in trouble in Palestine for being a Jew, but you would for being a Christian. So it was really tempting for these Christians, these new Christians who came out of the Jewish faith, not to go back into Judaism, right? All they had to do was obey the law, be a nice person, and what happens is they get a little bit of Yahweh, they get God, but they also get their culture off their back. They don't have to worry about the centurion coming into their home, you see. But here's the thing. Jesus, he's real. And it doesn't make any sense because there's this new way of relating to God through Jesus. In fact, Jesus is establishing this new world order. So the pilgrimage to Mount Sinai represented this religious and spiritual approach where you got to hide out, not feel any press from your culture, but it was based on your performance, on just generally being a good person, your adherence to the law. It's actually an approach to relating to God that's a founded, it's actually founded on your own moral performance, on just being a good person. Here, let me illustrate what this might look like today for us modern people. If God were to appear to us and, uh, like, ask us a super Billy Graham-style question and say, what, you know, give an account for your life, we're like, what would you say to him? Now, I don't know Denver that well yet. I'm the new guy. I suppose in Puerto Rico, this is what people would say. This is where I come from. They would say something like, hey, I tried to live the best life I know how. Yeah, I made some mistakes, but I'm a better person than most. I, I'm a pretty good person. I suppose um, they would point to their own accomplishments. So if they're from the oldest generation, like our grandparents, they would talk about how they worked hard. They put a shirt on your back and a roof over your head, right? They'd probably cite how they lived to very good traditional moral standards. They're not, you know, 
dirtied up by modern culture. Maybe they would cite that. I suppose the middle generation, maybe baby boomers, maybe Generation X, uh, they would like to cite their professional accomplishments, right? You'd show your success in business, uh, cite what you did with that festival. I became generous, and I gave to various social causes and organizations. And perhaps you would just like comfortably mention to God your support of missions and fighting poverty. If you're from the the younger generation, maybe, uh, you know, Generation Z, maybe you would talk about how you are a tolerant person. That's the chief moral good. Maybe you would talk about uh, being authentic. You are always true to yourself. Maybe you would show that you're more open-minded than other people. Maybe you would talk about how you don't judge other people, how you promote peace and promote equality, or better yet, equity. Maybe those would be your words. That's what you'd cite in your resume. And here's the thing. Whatever of those kind of makes sense of us, it's we're finding our identity in that, right? Because those are just examples of resumes, aren't they? Those are actually, dare I say it, approaches to God that typify a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. So what's the problem? I don't get it, Ronnie. Well, like, what's the problem? Sounds good to me. Your resume has very little to do with Jesus. Like, a person who finds their identity in their moral performance, whatever they think that is, or in their personal accomplishments, that person will be shaken and by the fire when trouble comes. That person will give up their loyalty to Jesus in this life when they're threatened. The pilgrimage. Why? Because Jesus was never that important to them in the first place. He was just an add on. Their personal resumes, their moral accomplishments are what they're citing to God. (laughs) But what happens when those things are taken away? What happens when your resume is ruined by either some outside force? Because you're a hypocrite, like I am. When that day comes, you'll be ruined alongside of your resume. Everything in this life will be shaken. And what's going to be left after it's all shaken? Will we stay firm? That's how come the author's saying in verse 25, he's saying, do not refuse he who is speaking. Like the incarnate word is speaking to you. Don't. Don't refuse him. The earth shook at Mount Sinai. The Israelites were shaken too, and ultimately they were destroyed. They refused to listen to God's voice, and they clung to their resumes. They clung to their idols. Right? Let me just explain that. By idols, I mean anything that we cling to that replaces our loyalty to Jesus. And when their idols died, they died with them. When Moses would speak about the covenant given at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is what he says. Listen to these verses. Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 and 24. He says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and then make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord God 
is a consuming fire, a jealous God, he warns. A consuming fire, a jealous God. And here's the point. Those idols, even though you can see them, touch them, they're not even real. It doesn't matter that you can touch them. They're not real, and they certainly can't save you. If you invest yourself in those things in the world, you will be shaken when they're shaken. This isn't a threat, you guys. This is like wisdom. (laughs) This is just wisdom. This is an attempt to help us live according to reality, a reality that's even more real. See, because here's the thing is Jesus is veiled to our sight for now, but he's more real than those false gods, actually going to last when those things are done away with. Again, this isn't a threat. This isn't God being grumpy. This is the Bible constantly trying to help interpret our physical and present experiences. That is to say, it's more real than the, sp- than the physical realm. Because the spiritual realm is going to endure forever. To understand this is actually to live in reality according to what it really is. Yes, yes, of course, it requires faith, but that doesn't make it untrue. This passage is helping us to see reality and to to live and to step into that and to live according to that reality. Jesus will last. He will. Will we endure and persevere with him, in union with him, or will we be in union with those things on our resume that are going to be done away with? What are we in union with, you see? So that's the implication of this pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. The author, though, points us to a better pilgrimage, and this is Mount Zion. Uh, If you're not familiar, Mount Zion is a a second metaphor. It represents um, this eternal existence uh, with the Lord. uh, Zion is the city of God, the, the celestial city, the new earth. Right, kind of, we get this picture from Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah sixty. Uh, even today in Israel, you'll have Zionists. They're all waiting for this new earth to come. Now, so it's this metaphor. So a few verses earlier in chapter twelve, we didn't read it in our reading this morning, but in cha- uh, chapter twelve and verse twenty-two, he says, he says, "But you have come to Mount Zion." You, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, right? That's, so he's citing this, this juxtaposition between Zion and, and uh, Sinai. Now, at Mount Sinai, the earth was shaken, but apparently, according to our passage this morning, it's going to happen again. Look there in verse 26. This time, God will shake not only the earth, not only that mountain, but also the heavens. You see that in verse 26? And the question is, why? (laughs) What's what's going on there? Why? And the author is saying, he's going to shake it in order that the things, verse 27, in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. This is not talking about a literal earthquake. This is language. This is talking about suffering, oppression, tragedy, injustice. Suffering and oppression have a way of showing us what we love the most, right? So the original audience, right, they're, they're being pressed into by their culture. They, they faced painful disappointment. Their world was very tumultuous. 
They were not even sure if they wanted to keep following Jesus because their affiliation, their union with Jesus, was resulting in oppression and suffering and injustice. So their world was being shaken. Now, in some cases, a centurion was literally standing over their heads with a rock ready to crush their skulls. And so they're asking, was it real? Is Jesus more real than the rock? Is, is Jesus superior even to their next breath? <laughs> right? That's what they're asking. And the author is telling them that a time was coming when they had to decide what did they love the most and would it truly last? These are the questions of the original audience. Boy, don't they resonate. Let me, uh, let me answer that. Let me respond to that through an illustration that I got from Tim Keller on his book, From Suffering. But I'm going to change it from earthquakes to storms. Storms. He says, imagine you're sailing. I would say you're sailing in the Caribbean. Uh, and a massive storm overtakes your small vessel. You have two choices to get to safety. You can let go of the rudder, take down the sail, and then go inside the, the body, uh, 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 inside the, the vessel for protection, and you can hide there until the storm passes. But this does amount to being lost at sea for a while. And so getting home is actually becomes a little bit more complicated. But you can do that. Or you can do something else. You can face the storm. And instead of hiding inside the vessel, you can hold tightly to the rudder. And by holding on to the rudder, you'll stay firmly on course. But not only that, precisely because the winds are stronger in the storm, you will actually arrive at home more quickly than you would have before. And so you can leverage the storm to bring you home. And here's the point. Storms and earthquakes have a way of getting you lost or getting you home. You see what I'm saying? But either way, the storms and the earthquakes are coming. Big ones. Big ones. Life is hard. And it's, it's going to force you to decide what are you going to hold fast to. Remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago? Just wait till you get the phone call that you have brain cancer, and then you're going to start organizing your life around what you think is true, right? What, what you think is important, and what will it be? Because no one gets brain cancer and says, I just want to dedicate my life to finishing out all the seasons of The Bachelor. Right? Like, no one does that. Right? Life is going to force you to decide what you believe is real. The world is shaking. And what are you holding on to for help? Because, like, listen, because I know we all, we all go to church, right? We're all going to church. My question is deeper. What are you holding on to? You see, that's a deeper question. How you answer those questions reveal what you believe about Jesus. How you answer those questions tells you what pilgrimage are you on. Are you going to Sinai? Are you going to Zion? Will you finish this difficult pilgrimage? And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't give up. 
Don't give up. Stay firm. All right, listen, I, I know this sermon's a little bit intense. These metaphors are very vivid. The implications are sharp. I'm not, I'm not trying to manipulate anyone with fear. I, I just I'm, I want to speak plainly about these things. This passage is deep and intense. And I do not want to insult your intelligence by trying to shield you from the intensity of the Bible. Let me just land this plane. Let me conclude this sermon with one last observation. The basic message of Hebrews, and we only have one more sermon left, so we're at the very end. The very basic message, the way you summarize Hebrews, is that Jesus is superior to everything. But why? But why is Jesus superior? And here's why. And listen, follow this. God is one massive, consuming fire of holiness. If we were to get within 10 trillion miles of God, we'd be instantly incinerated by his holiness. And so the main problem that you and I have is not our suffering. Our main problem is not our rebellious children. It's not our failing health. It's not our empty bank accounts. It's not our unfulfilled longings to be married. It's not our poverty. It's not the person who's in office right now. It's not our wars. It's not our culture wars. It's none of those things. Our main problem is that you and I have no hope of drawing near to God without being consumed. For our God, verse 29 says, is a consuming fire. We have no hope and no right to make the pilgrimage to the heavenly city. We would just get there and be consumed. Even the sound of God's voice would destroy us. The earth would shake and we would be destroyed with it. God is holy and his, his wrath burns hot against our sin. Sin. Sin like that touches every single molecule of what makes us. We are so thoroughly contaminated. And God's holiness would just shatter us, incinerate us. And so we need something. Rather, we need someone who can cover us and take us straight into the heart of that fire. Who? Who can do this? Let me just read you a short passage from Matthew chapter 27, the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus is hanging on the cross. This is how it reads. Listen to these words again. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Did you see it? The earth shook. The judge of the world, the, the, like the one who wrote the law, who is the perfection of the law, the incarnate fire, that is Jesus. But what we see here is this Jesus, the judge, is judged for us. 
The earth shook. Jesus was consumed in our place. That's the mystery of the whole gospel. That's why we, we come to church every Sunday to recite. The judge of the world was judged as our substitute so that he could cover us with his righteousness and transport us right into the center of the fire, the fire of God's holiness, so that God's presence would not shatter us, so that God's presence would not make us anxious or scared, so that God's presence would not destroy us or even scare us. And now, because of Jesus, for those who are in union to him through faith, that massive hot fire has changed from something that is infinitely dangerous to something that is irresistibly beautiful and compelling. That consuming fire now gently warms us with his unconditional affection and love, mercy, and intimacy. Let's pray it into our hearts. It seems right 